So we are so blessed to have Pastor Josh White all the way from Oregon here. He's the pastor of Door of Hope Church. Um, I think they just celebrated 15 years as a church around that, and we've been following his ministry for a while here. We're big fans of him. He wrote a book called Stumbling Towards Eternity, which is an incredible read, and we're going to have some copies available here as well. Um, we read it as a, as a staff uh, recently, and we just got together um, a few weeks ago at a coffee shop, and everybody shared kind of their takeaways. And I'm, I'm not really generous on my five-star reviews, but I gave it a five-star review for this one. And you know what? There was so many points in this book that I was moved. It's a powerful story of uh, really weaving in Christ's seven saints on the cross with Josh's own story and hardships and difficulties with his father. And man, there were times where I was just in tears, where I was moved, where I was just worshiping the Lord. And so um, Josh has come all the way, and we are so excited for what he's going to bring tonight. I know you guys are going to be blessed. So let's give him a Calvary Monterey warm welcome. Josh White. I think this pulpit's made for a man much taller than me. You really make me feel short right now, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, guys. If I get uncomfortable, though, I can just duck down, just pretend like I'm not here. <laughs> just if you ever get a guy that's so nervous, he just preaches like this the whole time. <laughs> uh, man, it's so good to see you guys. Uh, my name's Josh White. I'm the lead pastor of a church called Door of Hope in Portland. Um, yeah, as uh, Matt said, uh, Door of Hope will be 15 years old. Uh, this May. I was just down in California doing a wedding uh, um, <laughs> two weeks ago and, uh, in Escondido and this, on this property that's been owned by this family for like a hundred years. And the, the, the grandfather, who's like probably like 85, 86 years old, uh, he says to me, he's like, Portland, you look like you're from Portland. <laughs> and he goes, uh, how are things with them, them Antifa? And I was like, what is happening to me right now? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'm like, you know, it's, it's Portland. It's, it's crazy. I'm like, but, you know, like uh, Jonah in, in, in Nineveh, I, I've tried to get away from it. Um, and every time I run away, the Lord vomits me back up on the shore. Uh, and uh, it, he goes, is the, is the city still burning? And I'm like... It never was burning. Um, it was crazy. And Portland obviously was in the news a ton. It was a very difficult city to be a pastor uh, in, uh, during the pandemic. Um, but you know what? Um, it's such a privilege to be somewhere that's truly post-Christian and to find this incredible truth. And as an evangelist, um, I have uh, never cease to be amazed by the uh, misconceptions there are that a place like Portland is unreachable. Uh, because when you have a city where it's truly post-Christian, nobody has any church baggage because they've never been to church. So you tell them about Jesus, they're actually far more open to it than you think. Um, and what we've seen at, our, at, at Door of Hope is hundreds and hundreds of young people come to faith um, in Jesus, um, and we've been uh, privileged to uh, be a strong, orthodox, gospel-preaching church that has not experienced really any backlash from the city, uh, and have, if anything, have been embraced by the city because of the effectiveness with the homeless community, with young adults, um, and so 
as hard as that city is, and it is an exhausting city. Uh, it is, I always say Portland is a place that make, where um, uh, we're so progressive that it makes most, most liberals look like conservatives. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a challenging place, but in many ways, it's also a place where, not surprising, Jesus often moves in places where you think he's least likely to move. So um, my prayer is that uh, that same Jesus uh, makes his presence felt here tonight. Um, I, I'm going to be sharing with you guys uh, tonight and tomorrow uh, just three statements from the cross. Jesus made seven statements from the cross. And the seven words that Jesus spoke, I always argue, are words that actually um, explain the gospel. He actually is explaining, exegeting the gospel while he's achieving uh, all that the gospel means. That Jesus on the cross, we find God in the flesh as both the judge and the judged in our place. Um, that he is a God who is not content, as I like to say, to exist without us. Um, he doesn't need us, but he has chosen to not exist without us. That he is a God whose message is wrapped up not in a bunch of words, but is wrapped up in his very personhood. A God whose message is down to earth because that is what God has done. He's come down to earth, down to us. Um, there's an accessibility to Jesus that makes him so compelling. I came to faith at 27 years old, and it was my studies of the teachings of Jesus, reading a Bible by myself in Seattle in my mid-20s, and reading through the Sermon on the Mount over and over again, and just finding there's just something about this Jesus that I, I've got to know this man, because he doesn't talk just like a man. He seems to talk like God, but he also seems relatable like a man, but not like any man I've ever met. And he's also nothing like the critics that are telling me that I shouldn't pay any attention to what he has to say, and yet I've never spoken a name that can bring such discomfort to a room so quickly. It was actually me bringing up the name of Jesus before I was a Christian with a group of musicians. I was a Seattle musician in the 90s, um, and I remember I was sitting with a table of musicians, and I, I, uh, I, I brought up the question. I said, I just question you guys. We were talking about books we were reading, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just curious. I'm reading the Bible for the first time, and I'm not a believer, but I'm like, what do you guys think about Jesus? And it was like, I literally had like stripped naked and asked for everyone to give me a group hug. Uh, <laughs> it was insane. And what was the craziest is that the woman sitting next to me had just got done telling the table that she was a druid and had done this whole like naked dance, solstice summer dance on Capitol Hill in a graveyard. And everyone's like, that's amazing. And I'm, I just asked the simple question, what do you think about Jesus? And they're like, how dare you? And it was in that moment, I'm like, there's power here. That, that's not something that's explainable. Where the power is most fully seen, I would argue, though, is in the cross. And when we look to the cross, we discover something that helps bring to... Um, a deeper understanding of the words of Paul when he said, the Jews seek after signs and the Greeks seek after knowledge, but we preach Christ crucified. 
And I always say that those four words wield absolute authority for us as Christians. We preach Christ crucified. Think about that. Do you seek after signs? Think about all the churches today that have fallen into the trappings of, of an experiential, sensational Christianity. It's all about the experience. It's pride and experience. But think about all the churches on the other side that are intellectually astute and um, theologically focused, orthodox in every level, and yet the church is utterly dead. Pursuit of knowledge, pride in knowledge, pride in, pride in uh, experience. No, what Paul says, no, we don't focus on either of those things. We focus in on Jesus Christ and him crucified because it is at that place that we find the, the level playing field where every man, every woman, every boy, every girl can discover the one who on their worst day is crazy about them. And that's what I want you guys to experience, is that Jesus? Because you didn't just come here to hear someone speak. What I pray you came to experience is actually the presence of the living Christ who says, when two or more gather in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. I want to just begin here with a, a story. We're going to look at the thief on the cross tonight, but I want to begin with a story about my dad. My earliest memory um, is, this is a... a <laughs> It's a deeply troubling memory, but my earliest memory is, is me in the back of a car. I was three years old, and I'm watching my mom and dad in, um, in a fight. In my memory of it, it's weird. There's no sound. It's just my mom hitting my dad with anything she can get her hands on, um, and my dad screaming back at my mom, and I'm just in the back seat, scared and crying. My mom told me, I said, I, I don't have a memory of the sound, but what was being said? My mom said, this is what was being said. Your father had, had um, I had left your father because he was an alcoholic and he kept getting put in jail. Um, and he showed up at our apartment and he was extremely drunk and he said he was going to take you. And he put you in the back of the car. And she's like, what you don't remember is that I actually was hitting him over the head with rocks um, trying to get you out of the car, and, and the police almost arrested me for the incident, um, and they let your drunk father take you. Um, but my, my memory of this is, is deeply troubling, because what my mom said was going on is that I kept saying, um, I, I want my mommy, and my dad kept saying, he's my son too. He's my son too. So I'm visiting my father, 40 years later, 44 years later. And, I'm, and my, dad lives in, my dad lived in Alaska. He just died. Um, next week will be the two-year anniversary of his death. Um, my dad lived in Alaska in a cabin um, in, on the Soldatna Peninsula. And, and my dad is freaking rough. Like, when I say rough, like, he's like, he was like a more extreme, a more weathered and haggard version of Willie Nelson. And I mean, Willie Nelson is kind of the definition of weathered and haggard. Um, and my dad makes Willie Nelson almost seem clean cut. And um, I remember I, I went up to visit him um, before Christmas. It was 2019, and it was right before COVID. And, I, and he was so sick, and I thought he was going to die. He had gotten in the hospital. He was in and out of the hospital, go to the ICU, like probably three times a month 
because he would drink two to three-fifths of vodka a day, and he smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day, uh, and he was on, he had COPD, he had cancer, uh, I mean, everything that you could have wrong with, I remember asking the doctor, I'm like, so dad has cancer, should I be worried about that? He's like, oh, son, that's not gonna kill your father. Uh, he, there'll be many things to get him before that. But up to this point, he's continued to surprise us with his uncanny ability to raise from the dead because my dad would go into the hospital. He had, would usually have lost like two quarts of blood um, from ulcers and be barely breathing in gray. And they would get some blood in him, nurse him back to health, send him home and do it all over again. He had, I told him, I remember telling him like, dad, you're like a cockroach. And he's like, he's like, I think you're right. <laughs> he couldn't be killed. Um, but on this particular occasion, we're sitting in his cabin, and I just remember his, his breathing tubes in his nose, and he's smoking a cigarette, highly flammable. He caught his nose on fire like three times. Uh, not while I was there, but this happened many times. Uh, I didn't know that he was actually putting my life in danger by smoking with that oxygen tank. And, the, and it's like... 40 below outside, so all the windows are closed. The, this, to give you an idea of the state of this house, like I remember going in to take a shower, and, and I turned the hot water on, and I'm standing in the shower, and all of a sudden I feel these, I notice the discolored water like dripping on me, and I, I look up, and the ceiling was like dark yellow, and the water was causing like nicotine to like drip on, that's how much my father, it, it was terrible. I had to go rent a hotel just to take a shower. And I'm sitting there watching my dad smoke, and I, I bring up the incident with him about my memory. I said, Mom told me what happened, and he looks at me and he goes, I'm still pissed at you for that. And I said, what? He goes, for, I go, for what? And he goes, you didn't want to be with me. And I said, I was, I was three years old. And he goes, I'm still pissed at you for that. And he went back to smoking. And I was dumbfounded by this statement. And at first I was, I found myself angry. I'm like, he abandoned us. Like he was gone. He was never there. And yet here he is telling me he's mad at me, a three-year-old, for being scared as I'm thrown in the back of a car by a drunk man. Um, but as I watched him, he was watching TV, and I'll, I'll never forget, um, Little House on the Prairie was on the TV. My dad was smoking, and he started looking out the window, and he just seemed, he was having a hard time breathing. And I just remember this softening. Something came over me, and I just, I, I saw my dad for a moment, not as this man who abandoned me, who's hurt me, but I saw my dad as someone's son, someone who's hurt by his own father, someone who is hurt by his mentally sick mother, a man who lives all alone and his health is declining and he's dying and he has no hope and he doesn't know God. And all I saw was a broken man and my heart broke for my father. And I realized in that moment I had an opportunity to be a conduit of something different than a disgruntled son, but I had the opportunity to become a conduit of what I believe we are primarily called to be as Christians, which is conduits of grace. And to be a conduit of grace is to recognize that love 
grace is love without contingency. You notice that it says in the, in the Old Testament, honor your mother and father. Aren't you bummed that it doesn't have a contingency on it? Like, honor your mom and dad if they're awesome. It doesn't say that. And I recognize that my own, and once you become a parent, you're very grateful that it doesn't say that. Uh, and I remember looking at my dad, and I was like, he just confessed to me. He just, I'm a, I'm a priest right now. And he has shared something, whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. It's what he felt. It's what he had experienced, was an overwhelming sense of rejection by his own boy. And I just looked at him, I said, Dad, I'm so sorry. And he looked back up at me and he goes, he goes, I'm sorry, Joshua. I don't know what's wrong with me, son. I'm, I'm, I'm usually tougher than this. Your old man's usually tougher than this. And I said, I know, Dad. I said, I love you. And he goes, I love you too, son. And we both looked at the screen. I'll never forget. You guys ever watch Little House on the Prairie? Yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, I watched Little House on the Prairie. And there's a... There's a there's a scene where um, uh, Pa Ingalls is in a field and he's praying for his boy who's dying. Um, and he's asking God to save his boy. And it's, I remember the episode, that an angel appears to him and, like, and the boy's healed. And that very scene was on when I looked at the TV. And I remember thinking to myself, this is some strange portent and prayed, Lord, would you save my dad? That was my prayer. I want to use that as a setup for the unlikely candidate of what kind of person does God save? What do we have in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 33? We're told that Jesus, when he was crucified, that there were two others who were criminals, who were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And if you guys know much about that story, what we're told is that both criminals at first were taunting Jesus. You know, there's a powerful passage in, um, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus said, If the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And I've often thought to myself, that seems like a hyperbolic statement. They're all people drawn to Jesus. And I would argue that every time Jesus is lifted up, all people are drawn. But what we get wrong is all people are drawn, but the response is not the same. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, everybody was drawn to him. Everybody's eyes were on Jesus. But some were repulsed, and others saw him for what he was, like the soldier after he finally died. Truly, this was the Son of God. And what I would argue is that Jesus also said, all people will be drawn to me, but he said, the Son of Man did not come to bring peace on earth, but to bring a sword. The one who is our peace is also the sword, because the sword is the dividing reality of the world's response to the one that they are drawn to. And what we have in the story of the thief on the cross is that these two thieves at first come against Jesus 
And it's amazing to think that two men that are also being crucified, and if you know anything about crucifixion, crucifixion, when we wear a cross around our neck, we are essentially wearing an electric chair around our neck. What we don't understand is that the cross was actually the worst thing that man could do to another man. It was, it, it was an instrument of torture that was meant to extend pain as long as possible to send an incredible message to the people that you do not want to rebel against this system. It was, it was created to create as much torment as possible without killing the person immediately. Couldn't breathe. Jesus had already been beaten. He's nailed to the cross. These two other men, though, are also crucified. And yet, in the midst of anguish and torture, I don't know about you, but if I'm being tortured to death, my first thought is not going to be, I want to make fun of this guy. <laughs> That's not what I would be thinking. But it, it speaks to the magnetism of Jesus, the extraordinary magnetism of him. But what I find fascinating is the different responses between these two men on each side. Jesus is drawing them, um, and both are looking to Jesus, but their responses are very different. And this is what I want us to think about tonight, because what I want you to walk away with tonight is an understanding of grace, because one of the guys got it and the other one didn't. I think it'd be good to give you a, a good... A, a, a friend of mine, um, David Zoll, his father, Paul Zoll, wrote a book um, on, uh, on grace that like, changed my life. And it's called Grace in Practice. And if we can get that first slide um, that, that has the, the quote on grace. And what Paul Zoll writes is this. What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. Think about that. It's the one-way love of God. And here, Jesus, who is the love of God embodied, and it is His grace that is the thing that is drawing all people to himself, but it is also the grace that is also offending people because the most difficult thing I would argue, and I just had this amazing conversation with this young woman who grew up Muslim who's on the verge of becoming a believer. She's been coming to Door of Hope, and she said to me recently, she said, Christianity is way harder than Islam. And I said, why do you say that? And she goes, because in Islam, you're not told that Allah loves you, and you're not told that you have to love Allah. You just have to obey. You just have to do the things that you're told to do. It's works. It's, it's ladders. It's you got to climb your way to heaven. you got to prove yourself to God. you gotta, you got you to make it known that you are worthy of being saved. It's not driven by grace. It's driven by merit. And she said Christianity is difficult because you say something, you tell me to practice Ramadan, that just means I have to fast. I get that. It may be uncomfortable, but it's not difficult. But when you tell me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, what does that even mean? And I was like, that's a very profound and insightful thing for you to recognize. She's like, 
I feel like I'm supposed to do something and you keep telling me that everything that needs to be done has already been done by Jesus. And I find that, frankly, kind of offensive. And I'm like, that's, that's the point. That's the point. See, Jesus is lifted up and he is doing everything that needs to be done. But for us as Christians, I would argue, even as Christians, it's still much easier for us to give than it is to receive. It is so hard to accept help. The greatest challenge I was confronted with with my dad is his inability to surrender. When I would talk about Jesus, he even came to the conclusion he believed that Jesus was true, but he couldn't surrender. I'm like, Dad, you haven't walked in two years. You're sitting in your own filth. What do you think you have that you can hold back from him? He's like, he's like, myself. I'm not ready to give up myself. And I'm like, I'm like, you're basically like you're dead. Like you don't have anything to offer. There's nothing to give except yourself. And all Jesus wants is for you to, he's not asking you to stop smoking. He's not asking you to stop drinking. He's just saying, Al, just give yourself to me and let me be responsible. Give yourself the bad and the good, the smart and the stupid. Just surrender it. But that is way harder for most of us than to be asked to do something. Because we all believe we're products of our, our nation, first of all, and we live by the declaration of what? Independence. And Christianity is the antithesis of that. It is the declaration of total dependence. If the church was to be truly what it ought to be, apostolic church, it would function way more like an AA meeting. It should probably begin with, hi, my name's Josh. I'm a sinner. It's been 20 seconds since I sinned last. <laughs> That's how it should be. I was sharing today with the guys. I'm like, I'm like, I practice a radical vulnerability from the pulpit because I don't want anyone to ever think that I am presenting to them an ideal that I myself can't keep. The gospel is a gospel of grace, and it's good news because I can't even get out of bed without thinking something or doing something stupid. This is why the gospel challenges us because it forces us to recognize that we are utterly impotent in our ability to save ourselves apart from the help of Jesus. And I, 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 I love this this passage because when we look at the two responses, you'll see it's very subtle. If we begin with the shadow man, the shadow man is what I refer to as the thief. No name is given to either thief. They're just both thieves or criminals. Um, but the first man says this to Jesus. In Luke 23, 39, he says, out one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, literally is railing at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. N notice what, what the demand is. The, the shadow man, why I call it the shadow man is because it's this concept that I I've, I've drew from um, a great Catholic thinker, Thomas Merton, he said that the shadow man is essentially that false self, that illusory self uh, that, that each one of us have. 
And it's a shadow because it's not real, because the ground of being for us is God himself. So when we choose to be independent, we choose to be our own selves, when we choose to live our lives the way that we want to live our lives, and I saw this in my father because he became a shadow of what he once was. When he was young, he was beautiful. He looked like a a more handsome version of Kurt Cobain, long flowing blonde hair, muscular, like the picture of vitality and fun and excitement. He's charismatic. And then to see him bloated with edema, his legs splitting open from, from lack of circulation, his hair thin and greasy, his fingernails uncut, his clothes soiled with his own body waste. I saw a shadow of the man. And it was all driven by this one principle, I shall be my own. And that is an illusion, because we are not our own. And we can't escape the reality that our lives are interconnected to the world in which we live, and we will all move toward the one thing that is an unavoidable reality, because last time I checked, the death rate is still one per person. And I look at the shadow man, and what I see is it's the man that God knows nothing about. Because he has chosen for himself far too much privacy. God has created you as an image bearer. He has a vision for you. He is your creator. He loves you. He has designed you to be intimately engaged with him and to be a conduit of his love to to your neighbor, which is anyone who's beside you, in front of you, behind you, at any given moment, in any given day. But when we reject that reality, we become an illusion. Our lives lack depth. They They lack substance. And this is exactly what we have in this criminal that comes to Jesus. And the reason I refer to him as the shadow man, and it's so fascinating because what do we have is that Jesus actually gives him no response. What Jesus is doing is not that Jesus didn't love the man next to him, but Jesus had nothing to say to the man who refused to let go of the illusion. There was nothing for Jesus to say to him because he wasn't asking Jesus to save him. He was making demands upon Jesus to perform for him. He railed against him. There was no repentance. There was no recognition, I am broken and I need help. He's dying a criminal. There's no hope for him in the world, and yet still his ego cannot release him from the belief that somehow if I can taunt the man next to me, I'm somehow still in control. Sort of the definition of a bully, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what a, what a bully is? If, if I can belittle the person next to me, uh, it, at least I'll have some kind of proof that I'm not nothing. But Jesus says nothing to him. And the way that I like to describe the shadow self, because we all have it, we all have this illusory side to ourselves, it's that hell-bent belief that we are the masters of our own lives, that we are the authors of our future. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was, you know, I, I moved to Seattle when I was 20. I started making music. I was ambitious. I was driven. By 22, I had a record deal with Mercury Records. I was, everything was headed my way. And it's funny, when you 
think that you are your own God, um, how crushing it is uh, when whatever it is that you worship, for me, I worship fame, I worship the idea of success, the chase of it. But when I lost my record deal after my first single collapsed at radio um, and it bombed and we were dropped within, I think, like two months of the single being released, uh, there was this complete loss of identity. I was like, what am I? I, was, I felt the shadow reality. And here I was married and I was working at a record store for minimum wage, newly married, selling my own record out of the used bin for 99 cents. This is a wonderful means of learning the, the beautiful truth of humility, by the way. Uh, if you want to learn humility, um, just, just sometimes you've got to learn it through the school of humiliation. Um, and I tasted it in spades. <laughs> and and it, was, it was brutal. But it was that reality of like, my life is not built on something that's sustainable. All I felt was despair. And my wife was like, I don't want to be with a man. It's like, I thought I was marrying a rock star. And now you're, and even when you weren't a rock star, at least you were fun chasing it. Now it's been taken from you, and I'm seeing actually how pathetic this really is. Um, and the obsession and the self-focus, it, all it led was even greater despair because I saw I was just grasping at straws. I'm trying to climb a ladder that I can never get to the top of. This is why I always say that, that um, and if you want to test your own um, level of independence, I, I, always, I always use this as an example. Why are we so offended when our celebrities take their own lives? You know, when, you, when a celebrity takes their own lives, it's like really intense. It, like, it weirdly impacts people. Like when Robin Williams killed himself, I was like, it's deeply troubling. Or when the chef, uh, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Anthony Bourdain. When he, like, it was deeply troubling. It was like, like you're on top of the world. And I have come to the conclusion that we are not upset because we care about them. What we're upset by is that these are the people who have made it to the absolute top of human achievement. It's like they climb to the top of Everest, and while all the rest of us can't even stink and get to base camp, and they got all the way to the top, and they look back down at us, and they say, there's nothing up here, and they jump. And it's a deeply offensive thing because in our, in our heart of hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, when we allow the shadow self to get the better of us, we believe if we had what they had, we would have treated it differently. But the fact is, is that this is the emptiness of a life that's lived for itself. And the shadow man is left in a helplessness before the crucified king because he cannot simply come to him and say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Only the hardening of the heart. You know, Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? All these things in your name. And you know what's interesting? Jesus never denies that they did those things in his name. He just says, away from me, I never knew you. And I've often been baffled by that. What does he mean by that? He knows everything. How can he say, I never knew you? This is the point. He's, what he's saying is, I never knew the you that you chose to be, because that's not what I created you to be. You have chosen something that does not exist to me. You've, you've chosen non-reality. And many of us know what that's like, to choose a path 
that leaves such diminishing returns. I know what it's like to live a life doing hard drugs and chasing after all the things that have incredibly diminishing returns and the trail of wreckage that's left behind and the ruined relationships. And it is, it is coming to the realization that that is what we get when we chase after the shadow um, that brings us to a place where maybe now we're ready to, to receive our real name, our real identity. What happens with the other thief? Well, in the beautiful exchange, what we're told is that the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? It's interesting. We're told that both thieves were railing at Jesus at first, but at this point, what has this other thief seen? He saw Jesus have his hands and feet nailed, and what was the words that came out of Jesus' mouth? I would be dropping some serious expletives. But Jesus says what? Father, forgive them. Something is different about this man. Something is different. And he says, we, receive, we deserve what we're getting. We deserve what we're getting. We are receiving due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I, I want you to notice in that, this is a statement of repentance. An acknowledgement of his own brokenness and guilt and, a, and, a, and an absolute conviction that Jesus indeed is innocent that he is the one who is without blame. And what, is Je- what does he do? The moment he acknowledges his own guilt and the moment he acknowledges Jesus' innocence, he does something fascinating. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, it's fascinating that he doesn't, we're told then in Romans, you know, the classic formula is that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. He doesn't say Jesus is Lord. Um, he doesn't refer to him as Lord. He uses his human name. He says Jesus. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But essentially, the lordship is in, in, insinuated by the fact that he, he believes that this man is a king. And there's a kingdom that's his. And that death will not be the end of his story, even though it might be the end of the thief's story. And I think the other beautiful thing that I love about it is that the human name is a name, it's an intimate name. It's almost like the salvation component, the grace becomes so palpable in this moment that the torture disappears. And now you have two friends speaking. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus, without hesitation, unlike the first thief, I have nothing to say to your anger and to your refusal to recognize what you are. I have nothing to say to the man that I know nothing about because you chose to be something I never chose for you. But to this man, it is an immediate response. Truly, today, amen is essentially the, the Greek here. Amen. Let it be so. You will be with me. You know what I think is also interesting is that the thief doesn't, we're not told what he even means by remember me. Like, we don't know if he's asking for life, what he even thinks about an afterlife. 
Notice there's no theology. You know, when you think about what, it, what does it take to lead someone to, the gospel, to Jesus, uh, this is a really great passage to remind us that the average person uh, doesn't need an explanation of atonement to get saved. What they need to recognize is that they are broken, they are lost, and that Jesus is the answer. <laughs> we have to be very careful to not front load or back load the gospel. This guy can do nothing for Jesus. He's not baptized. There's no works involved at all. It's pure grace. Pure grace. You know, I love my Reformed brothers, uh, but there are times when there is such an attempt to avoid making it seem like there is anything to be done on our side. But I would simply say this about grace. It is a gift, and a gift can be given freely, but it also must be received freely. It must be opened. I can give you a gift, but it's not going to do you much good if you don't open it. But I think that hardly qualifies as merit. I just think that qualifies as um, a moment of divine illumination that says, it would be stupid not to open this gift. <laughs> you know, I saw this kind of grace, and I want to close with this, with this story, because um, I'm just priming the, the pump for tomorrow, but um, this kind of grace is what I refer to as unfair grace. Grace, grace is always unfair. Grace is always receiving something that you don't deserve, that on your worst day, in your worst moment, that God is crazy about you. There's a power here as well is that there's confession. And I always say that confession, we forget, some of us tend to think of forgiveness in these terms, that my sins aren't forgiven until I actually ask for forgiveness for each sin. But let me tell you, you don't even know the ways in which you sin. And yes, any way that you do know, confess it. But let me tell you, you are confessing something that has already been forgiven. All sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven in Jesus. It is total. Sin has tasted its death in the work of Jesus on the cross. So why do we confess our sins then? Because sin unconfessed hides God from our experience. But forgiven sins confessed becomes one of the chief ways in which we experience intimacy with Jesus. I can tell a way that I experience the beautiful reality of God's incredible forgiveness. I'm driving to church. I'm late, as usual. I have a 10-minute late gift. Um, and, I'm, and I'm speeding, which is also a peculiar gift that I have. And listen, I'm about grace, okay? I believe in the spirit of the law. Um, and, um, and some speed limits don't make sense to me. Uh, so I'm, I'm driving, and Portland is the, has more cyclists than any city in the United States. And I hate them. I, 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 I hate them. I really, like, I don't like their clothes. I don't like anything about them, their attitudes. They think they're saving the world, and they're not. They are, they are wasting my time, though, usually, with their attitudes and their little lycra tights. And this guy is, in fr and some of you are like, I'm a cyclist, and you know what? It's not my problem, and this isn't my church. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so this guy's in front of me, and he's, 
He's riding in front of me, and I'm trying to get around him, and he knows it, and he's purposefully like not letting me pass him because he doesn't think I should because he thinks he's riding fast enough because it's a residential road, and he might have been. <laughs> but I needed to get by him because I was late to church. So I finally got so mad, I like forced him off the road. Like I drove up, like I practically touched his bike with my car. And he gets mad and just immediately flips me off. And I, being a pastor and a lover of Jesus, immediately flipped him off as well. And, uh, and then I got to church and I'm like, I'm getting ready to bring the loving gospel of Jesus Christ to my incredible people. I run into my office and I'm like kind of frantic. And then I, I pull myself together and I go outside. I'm like, I should greet some people before I go in. I go out and the freaking bike is in the bike rack. Now, what do you do when that happens? I'll tell you, you do nothing. You don't say anything. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Listen, when you're a pastor with a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo, you cannot hide. Okay, like I'm like... I'm my own worst enemy. So, I, so I, I get up on the stage, and I do the only thing that I can do. I just said, you guys, before we start, I just got to confess something. Like, I tried to kill a cyclist today. And the worst part is I think you're here. And I don't know who you are. And I'm sorry. Like, I was running late. I was irritated. I lost my temper. I flipped you off. I flipped him off. Everybody, I flipped him off. Um, and I, and you know, I just, I want you to know I'm human and I, I love Jesus and his grace is good and he loves you and you deserve better than that, but don't ride in the middle of the road. That was, that was where I left it. But, but here's the thing. There's a power. There was, it was cathartic, honestly. And people laughed, but there, but some people gasped. <laughs> and, and, but the fact is, is like, I think actually, one of the things that is desperately needed in the church more today are pastors. You know why pastors keep bombing out, why they keep failing, why they keep, we keep hearing about these moral scandals, guys like Rabbi Zacharias, people, heroes of the faith. Like, what is going on? It's because we have insisted that our shepherds live out in front of us an ideal that they themselves can't keep, nor can you. And actually, what would be far healthier for the church is to recognize that the pastor is not your savior, that, that Jesus is all of our savior, and we're all what I like to call mixture. That everything we do, even when we are working in the power of the Holy Spirit, that there is still sin at play. And this is why it's such good news that all sin has been forgiven. Because even when I'm preaching to you, I can be preaching in a moment where the Holy Spirit seems to be speaking directly to your heart about the beauty of who Jesus is, and I can at that exact same moment be wondering if you really like me. Am, am I a little too intense? Uh, is my appearance inappropriate? Um, all the insecurities of my own broken childhood, all those things are always at play. The fears, fight I might have had with my wife the night before, an argument I might have had with my daughter, a, 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 an avoidance of a conversation I should have had here, the procrastination over here. I mean, if I let myself drown in the ways that I fail, it would be, life would be impossible. But when you understand grace and the gospel in its depth, 
that grace is unfair and that we are all thieves on the cross, it is then that you can recognize that the mysterious story is that thieves can become sheep. That actually there is no sheep that hasn't been a thief. There is no sheep that hasn't been a wolf. That when Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. When, it, when he says, the thief breaks in and tries to take what isn't his. And he, but then Jesus makes this mysterious statement. But I lay down my life for them. Who? Well, in the context, he's talking about the sheep. But when I look at this story, it seems like he might be talking about the thief. Because every sheep has once been a thief and will be a thief again. And this is why the gospel is meant to keep us in the light. What does it mean to be righteous, friends? Righteousness is not your ability to not swear anymore, to not drink anymore, to not have lustful thoughts anymore. You know why Jesus says, don't look at a woman lustfully? Whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his mind. He's not saying this is how you should and shouldn't look at a woman. What he's saying is that you're all a bunch of stinking adulterers. So look back to me and find your salvation. Why does he say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of hellfire. But I tell you, whoever is angry with this brother is in danger of hellfire. What's he saying? You're all murderers. You're all adulterers. You're all liars. You're all thieves. And I'm crazy about you. Come to me. All you are weary, come to me. The grace is unfair. Now, I'm not saying that we just die in our sin and just like, ah, just, so just do what you want. That's not the point. The point is this, is that the more I recognize that God's love is an immovable reality, the more I am compelled to live differently. For love alone compels us to change. And it is that love alone that helps us get up when we fall. And you will fall, friends. The path to heaven is not linear. It's a, it's a circle. It is a perpetual stumbling. It is not a ladder at all, actually, because it's not about arriving. It's about knowing him. My last story to share about unfair grace is with my dad. My daughter, Hattie, Five years old, my dad's first trip, re-engaged re with relationship with him, and I decided to fly him home to meet his grandkids for the first time. And this is a few years before that event where I was with him in the cabin, and I hadn't seen him in over five years, and I didn't know that he had had multiple strokes and that his health was depleting quickly. And he, he gets to the airport, I pick him up, and he is... I mean, he was so dirty. He was still walking at this point with a walker. And um, there, there's my dad. This is the day I picked him up. That is Al White right there. Look at that guy. He's a legend. <laughs> that was after I made him take a shower at my brother's house. And I bought him a new trucker hat because his other trucker hat was literally soiled. Um, and then that's my daughter, Hattie Starr, uh, right around the time, probably a year after she met him. But Hattie, I remember, before she met him, says to me, Daddy, I love Grandpa. And I'm like, 
and because I'm a good dad, I said, how can you say that? You haven't even met him. You don't even know if he's a good guy because I'm a, I'm a good pastor and grace-filled. And, uh, and she said, I love him because he's your dad and he's my grandpa. And I was like, what do you do with that? Um, so the day my dad comes, my daughter sat out on the front porch for a half an hour waiting for us to get there from the airport. My dad was angry and frustrated when I had picked him up. I had picked him up in Seattle, and like I told Darcy, I would text when I was about a half an hour away, and he made me stop every five minutes because I wouldn't let him smoke in the car so he could have a smoke break, and he kept drinking these little bottles of vodka, and I mean, it was just it was so stressful. I was stressed, and I was embarrassed. It's my dad. Like, he's like, he's rough, and I told her before, before he showed up, I said, listen, Grandpa, before he goes in our house, honey, he's going to want to smoke a cigarette, and she had this really weird aversion to cigarettes as a kid. She's like, does he know it's going to kill him? I'm like, he does, and he does not care. So don't say anything, honey. And she's like, all right. But he shouldn't. I'm like, I know, but just don't say anything. So we pull up in front of the, front of the house, and my daughter runs down those steps, and she opens the car and she, door, and she says, hi, Grandpa Al, I'm Hattie. Can I help you in? And he says, well, hello there, little lady. And he reached out his hand, and my dad swore to the day that he died that when that little girl touched his hand, he goes, it was like, and my dad is not woo-woo in any way. He was like, it was like energy. Like I was shocked with love, like the slight. He took her hand and she walked him, she walked him up to the front steps in his walker and he goes, little lady, your grandpa's got to have a smoke. And he lit up a cigarette. My wife came out on the porch. In the book, I describe it as my, both my wife and my daughter and my son, they all have what I call cerulean blue eyes. It's a very specific color blue, and they have really dark limbus rings around it. And I would say that Hattie's eyes were too big for her head. Like they, and it's like light kind of shoots out of her eyeballs. She's an unbelievably charismatic girl, and she was just like, just a fearless ball of energy as a kid. And it was like, it's like her face couldn't contain the light in her eyes or something. Um, where my wife and my son have this weird calming effect when they look at you. Um, Hattie's like a little like, whoa, I don't know what's going to happen kind of look. Um, and both my daughter and my wife looking at my dad at the same time, it was like too much for him to come under the gaze of two this young girl and this beautiful woman who accepted him, just kindness to him. My dad lit up his cigarette, and I was like, this is the moment of truth. This is the moment of truth. And she looks, <laughs> she looks at me, and she looks at him, and I'm like, oh, God, she's going to do it. She's going to say it. And then she looked down, and all she said was, I really like your boots, Grandpa. And it moved my dad. And he got choked up. And he said, thank you, little lady. He goes, you sure are beautiful. And, he goes, and she goes, I love you, Grandpa Al. And he goes, I love you. And I saw in my father that battle of a man who wished he could disappear in that moment and at the same time wished he would never have to leave. The wrestling of, will I surrender to this? 
Or will I protect myself from this to avoid being hurt? And for a moment, for just a moment, he became a better man. He moved away from the shadow and he started to be visible what he could be. I'll share tomorrow how it happened, but my dad came to faith in 2020. But I believe it began with that girl's grace, a grace that is always unfair. And like the thief on the cross, my dad moved from being a thief to sheep because he eventually said, Jesus, you win. <laughs> and that's really what Jesus is asking for us to recognize. That's the whole name of this, this conference, right? Christ is victorious. He has won. Why are, we, why are we not accepting his victory on our behalf? And I just encourage you guys, wherever you have come from, whatever your story is, and forgive me for rambling and rabbit trails, I've been deathly ill with uh, really bad bronchitis for two weeks, uh, and I'm on all kinds of prednisone and fun things that makes me feel a little bit surreal. Uh, but I trust that Jesus spoke where he needed to speak, and I pray that each one of you know that I don't care what you've come from or what you've done or what is holding you up right in this moment. Jesus is crazy about you. And he loves you. And he is not content to exist without you. Say yes to his yes because he is the God of yes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. And I pray tonight that these, these men would find a freedom in stepping into the light, confessing their brokenness to you and to one another. I pray that they would find the freedom of, in, the, in their ability to say, Jesus, without you I am lost, help me. And Lord, I, I say that right now. Lord, without you, I am lost. Lord, life isn't just difficult, it's terminal, but you are good. And you have not left us to our own devices, but you have stepped into the mess and you have made it your own. And I pray, Lord, that we would cling to the hope that we have in you, that you are the God who cares. Like my daughter and the way that she treated my dad, this is the way that you look at us without judgment, for you have taken that judgment into yourself. And your love, Lord, is ferocious. It is a fire, and I pray that it would consume us, consume the shadow selves, so that who we are truly meant to be might come into focus as we live humbly before you. And so, Lord, I just pray over these men. I pray this tonight and tomorrow that you would just do a work. And I pray that people that have been hiding would come out of hiding and come into the light and discover how good you are. It's in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks, guys.